Well, we're speaking of an unworthy manner of eating and drinking this morning, an unworthy manner. You see that term in verse 27 or that phrase, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Now, just a reminder, when the Corinthians were getting together for the Lord's Supper, observing the Lord's Supper, it didn't look like it does for us today. First, they didn't have their own building. They didn't register with the state as a 501c3 organization, and they didn't have a parking lot where they all drove to and gathered together once or twice a week. That's not what was going on in Corinth. In the early church, we see uh, different ways of going about observing communion, but it was in someone's house. They would gather in a person's house, and they wouldn't just come together for a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice or wine, but they would get together and often have a full meal called a agape feast or a love feast. And an aspect of that feast would be to observe the Lord's Supper, would be to take communion together. That's the context for the Corinthians. And as Paul is giving them instructions here, he says in verse 27, "'Therefore, whoever does this in an unworthy manner shall be guilty.'" Well, we always have to be attentive to that word, therefore, and see why it's there. And if we run our eyes back over the verses that Tyler preached for us last week, verses 23 to 26, we see that we're reminded of what communion is. Paul was just explaining that the meal is a remembrance, a memorial, and also a proclamation. You'll notice that he says that the Lord Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In none of the gospel accounts do we see Jesus phrasing it exactly like this. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, you don't see Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me for both the bread and the cup. We don't believe that Paul is misquoting Jesus or anything here. We believe that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul was given the fuller text of what Jesus had said. And Paul's obviously highlighting the fact that it is a memorial. We're doing this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. And it's also a proclamation. Look at verse 26 again. For as often as we do it, we're not just doing it in remembrance, but we are actively proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. As we observe the Lord's Supper together, we are remembering and proclaiming. Therefore, if we go about taking communion in an unworthy manner, we're guilty of the body and the blood of our Lord. We know that taking communion isn't some mystical experience. Tyler did a great job giving an overview of the different views of that, but this is a memorial. It's a regular means of growth, a regular means of grace. God imparts to us as we're remembering, where our minds are channeled into the sacrifice of our Lord. But we have to be considerate of the manner in which we go about it. The Corinthians had made this remembering of the Lord all about themselves. They had made the supper not the Lord's supper, but their own supper. The rich in Corinth, it seems, were coming with their own food. They were coming with their nice meal. They were eating their nice meal, sitting in the nice places, and the poor were put to shame. That's what it appears is what was happening in Corinth. And Paul says that's not the way it should be. Paul says that's an unworthy manner of going about remembering the Lord's Supper. 
The manner of eating and drinking has to be considered, and Paul says there's an unworthy way of doing it. Now, it is something that I'll bring up here and I'll bring up more and more throughout the message. It's the manner of eating and drinking that's unworthy, not the individual's. The manner, but not the person's. Paul's not giving us a classification of people in the church, the unworthy and the unworthy, or the unworthy and the worthy, rather. He's giving us a classification of manners of going about things. Some manners are worthy and some are unworthy. But I'm pointing this out to you because I don't want you to read the text today and say, well, that's a message on how to make yourself worthy for communion. That's not what Paul is addressing here at all. Because except for the Lord Jesus Christ, we're all unworthy, aren't we? We all approach the table as unworthy sinners. And even as we're saved, we are in a great consideration, we are still unworthy. Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners toward the end of his life. Yet because of the righteousness that has been given to us, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are all equal to God. We come to the table as equals because we are equally righteous before the Lord. And we reflect on the grace and mercy of God in the cross that has made us worthy. That's what we're doing in communion. Nevertheless, our actions must be examined. And that's what Paul is calling us to do. Even though we are totally accepted by God on the merits of Christ alone, we still have to examine our actions. Neither one of those truths discounts or cancels out the other. Just because we are totally counted as accepted in God's sight, that doesn't cancel out this idea that we need to examine ourselves. And just because we're called to examine ourselves, that doesn't mean we cancel out the the fact that we're accepted by God on the merits of another. Both are equally true. We all come to the table together on the merits of Christ alone, and yet we are to consider our actions as we do so. Paul says in verse 27 that, Some, by their actions, shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of our Lord. This is extremely serious, isn't it? Extremely serious. That word for guilty is a legal term. They would have on their account some sin that would need to be dealt with. Paul is saying they're liable for putting Christ to death because of their unworthy manner of handling the Thanksgiving meal. Of course, Paul is not speaking of people being removed from the body of Christ because they're guilty of this. There's no sin that you can commit as a Christian that will remove you from the body of Christ, and we'll see that as the text goes on. But Paul is saying that there are certain actions you can commit that would incur guilt on your account. It's a sin against God, and it's a very paradoxical sin. It's a tragic irony, this particular sin. Because the unworthy manner that Paul is talking about is people being very selfish, people lifting themselves up before those who have nothing. And what are they remembering in the Lord's Supper but that Jesus, who has all things, laid aside His privileges to serve those who have nothing and to lift them up? And their particular sin was an exact inverse of the gospel. In the gospel, we see that God, who always is, always has been, always will be. He came to earth. He stooped down low. He condescended to be among us, to wash our feet, to live a perfect life, to die in our place for our sins. 
If there ever was a rich man, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, rich in every way that matters. And yet he became poor for us. And so the Corinthians, when the rich are shaming the poor by not serving them, by not considering them, by not esteeming them rightly, that's unworthy. It's, they're guilty of the body and the blood of their Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul presents a solution, the solution of self-examination. Self-examination is the solution of, to unworthy eating and drinking. He says in verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We are to judge ourselves rightly. Joining in the Lord's Supper, as we observe, and as we will in a few moments, observe the Lord's table, it is both a corporate activity and an individual activity, isn't it? It's both and. We come individually, but we partake together, just like with our salvation. Your salvation isn't just an individual concern. It's also a very corporate concern because you weren't saved that you would be the body of Christ on your own. You were saved that you would be a member of the body of Christ. But of course, when you came to Christ and when you had faith, it was a personal faith. It's both individual and corporate. So is communion. Turn back to chapter 10, verse 16, just the chapter before. Verses 16 and 17, we see this theme in these verses. Paul writes, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread or the one loaf. In communion, we are channeled in our thinking not just to our individual salvation and our individual forgiveness of sins, but we're channeled into our thinking in our thinking toward our unity in Christ, that we have a common confession of the gospel, that we're not running around as individual confessors only, but that we are together in unison, believing in the gospel, trusting in Jesus Christ. And this is the only place that we see in the New Testament, chapter 10, where the one bread is compared to the one body of Christ, the church. So there's something that Paul wants them to understand about their unity in Christ. And yet, we do all come to Christ individually. We all partake in communion individually as we also do it together. And because we're doing that individually, we're responsible for the way we behave. We're responsible for the way we interact with one another and consider one another, just like in every other area of life. Therefore, it is good and right that we analyze our motives in the church. Communion is a very appropriate time for that. Look again at verse 28 as a whole. Paul says that a man, singular, must examine himself, singular, and in so doing, in that way, he is to partake of the bread and of the cup. Communion is very appropriate to have that self-reflection, to examine your motives and the manner in which you are going about partaking of the supper. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5. Keep your finger here, but turn back to Matthew 5. Let's look at verse 21, verses 21 to 25, or 26 rather. 
Jesus spoke on this. He wasn't speaking of communion at this time, but I think you'll see the relevance of this. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And I'll pause there just to remind you, because sometimes I wonder if we forget. On the screen, if you're looking at the verses on the screen, when it's in all caps, God isn't yelling at you, okay? (laughs) Because in our cell phone age, we can kind of think that, our internet age, anytime it's in all caps, it's quoting, it's an exact quotation from the Old Testament, all right? So didn't want you to read that with a screaming voice in your head. Okay, let's start over. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge. And the, and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. Now, Jesus is speaking of a different situation. When we participate in communion, we are not making an offering. We're remembering the final offering in communion. Yet, we see a similarity in that Jesus was talking about worship, And communion, of course, is an act of worship that we share in together. And we learn from that text, and we learn from our text in 1 Corinthians today, that our interpersonal relationships are vitally important, aren't they? And those relationships have an effect on our worship. Those relationships have an effect, have an impact on our worship before God. Our worship in many ways, is unacceptable if we are unloving. Our love for God is certainly hindered if we don't have love for neighbor or love for brother. There's a direct correlation between the two, and therefore it's very appropriate that we examine ourselves before worship and to make sure that as far as it depends on us, accounts are settled. As far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on me, So we're to judge ourselves rightly. That was verse 28. And then in verse 29, we see that we're also to judge the body rightly. Verse 29 says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And this very naturally brings up the question, what body? What body are we judging? The the literal body of Jesus Christ? Is he speaking symbolically of the bread? Are we to judge the bread rightly? I believe he's speaking to the gathered assembly, the body of Christ, judging the local body rightly. And the Corinthians had struggled with this. Uh, We we see it throughout the book. The Corinthians don't have 
a ton of discernment, a ton of good discernment. This word for judging has to do with considering, to estimate, to distinguish, or to test. This is to be done rightly in the church, and it affects the way that we share in the Lord's Supper, the way that we separate truth from error, the way we separate good living from evil living, honorable living from shameful living. And this is the great task of Christians in the church. What is the great task of the Christian life? Well, it's to judge rightly in a lot of ways, isn't it? To esteem things correctly, to hold fast to truth, and to do away with error. Throughout the New Testament, believers are told to test or to prove or to judge a variety of things. Ourselves, like in this text today and in other places, we're to examine ourselves. We're to test and prove prophecies. We're to examine them, to test them. Disputes in the church. Paul encouraged the Corinthians back in chapter 6 to judge the disputes among themselves rightly, to examine those, to esteem those correctly. The doubtful things of the Christian life, those things having to do with eating and drinking or a variety of other issues, we are to have discernment to judge rightly. We're called to even test and prove other believers for certain tasks. Those who are called to be missionaries, to be servants in the church, to lead in the church, they're to be tested and proven. We're to test and prove the will of God. We're called to do that in the New Testament. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. We're to distinguish between the spirits. Test the spirits, it says in 1 John. Test them. Examine And in fact, even all things are to be tested and examined by Christians. This is 1 Thessalonians 5.21. I gave you a Matthew 5.21 earlier. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, examine everything carefully. Well, that takes the rest of your life to accomplish, doesn't it? Examine everything carefully. Go back. Walker, I didn't finish. (laughs) Hold fast to that which is good. That also could take the rest of your life. It's for the rest of your life. Examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, and then finally abstain from every form of evil. If you're looking for a short passage to summarize Christian living, there it is. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. Examine everything, hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. And so Paul is calling the Corinthians in our text today to consider the body of Christ, the church, and our activity in the church, rightly. To judge, examine, consider the body rightly, with the right reverence. Because if we go about handling communion in an unworthy manner, it is a great sin against our God. If we go about worshiping God in an unworthy manner, Again, not the individuals being unworthy. You're made worthy in Christ. But your behavior in worship, if it's unworthy, there are consequences for this. We're warned not to do this. And you might think, okay, we've got communion today, and we've got these things sitting here, and you look at them, and, well, aren't they just symbols? What is the big deal? Isn't this just a symbolic thing? Well, to a large degree, yes, it is a memorial, it is just symbolic. 
But I liked last week when Tyler shared the illustration of the wedding ring that he didn't have on his hand at the time. <laughs> um, I have mine on, Tyler, wherever you are. Uh, just make note of that. But uh, consider a scene in a movie, perhaps, of a woman in great frustration driving out into the country in her car, and she takes off her wedding ring and she throws it into a field. Now, you know that there's more going on there than just something symbolic. Well, what's the big deal? It's just symbolic. The way that the symbol is being handled matters. The way it's being considered matters. And as we go about handling these elements and participating and consuming the elements together, that matters. It says something about what we believe and what we think. It's very serious when a believer mishandles the elements that represent the body and the blood of our Savior. Now, let's look at God's response to the unworthy manner of eating and drinking. Verse 30, because of the unworthy manner, Paul says, for this reason, many, of, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Further down, he calls this discipline. Look at verse 32. It says, when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. What is God's response to the unworthy manner of worship? It's discipline. It's correction. I want to give you a, just a very simple definition for discipline. It's referring to God's correcting His children in ways that are sometimes painful. God's correcting His children in ways that are sometimes painful. When we speak of discipline, we are talking about God's interaction with those who are His. When we talk about punishment or condemnation, we are talking about God's interaction with those who are not His. If you are in Christ, there is now, therefore, no condemnation, Romans 8.1. There's no punishment for you because we believe that what Jesus suffered on the cross was our punishment. Therefore, what's left for us is not condemnation, not punishment, but discipline because the ones whom God loves, He disciplines, His children. But for those who are outside the body of Christ, for those who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior, there is left for them only condemnation, only punishment. They don't get disciplined. They get punished. They're condemned because they are without the righteousness of Christ. So for you as a believer, remember, this is not talking about condemnation. Paul makes that point explicitly clear in verse 32. We are disciplined so that we will not be condemned. We will not be condemned as God's children. God doesn't forsake His children when they disobey. In fact, God is constantly preserving His children. It's not just that He avoids condemnation for them, but He's actively preserving His children through discipline. God is preserving our souls by disciplining us. Now, we rarely think of preservation of the saints as being weak and sick and witnessing the death of believers around us. We rarely think of it in those terms. But that's Paul's presentation here, isn't it? How does he keep us from condemnation? By disciplining us in a way that actually touches our bodies, in this instance, as Paul is describing it. Sickness and death. Now, notice at the beginning of verse 30 that Paul says that it's for this reason. It's for their unworthy handling of the Lord's Supper. 
that they are facing this discipline. Let me tell you that only an apostle of God could make that kind of assumption. The next time one of you is sick, I'm not going to say, ah, well, let me tell you your sins, and that's the reason why. You just repent of those, and you'll click your heels twice, and you'll feel better in a jiffy. That's not my role. That's not any human alive on the face of the earth today. It's not, no one's role. But for an apostle, he could say such a thing. Paul says, for this reason, God is correcting you by causing you to deal with sickness and by causing some of you to die, to fall asleep. When he says a number of you sleep at the end of verse 30, it means a sufficient amount, a sufficient amount to bring, a point, bring, to bring about God's point in all of this, that He's disciplining them. And it is a corrective action as people would witness the death of their brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul is saying it's God's discipline for the body that they would learn and that they would change and that they would be corrected in their unworthy manner of worship. And notice he says sleep. This is a word for death, a euphemism for death that's reserved for God's people. When the world dies, they die. But when God's children pass away, they sleep. This same term was used when Lazarus was just sleeping. Remember that? When Jesus said, oh, he's just sleeping because he was going to be raised up. When Stephen, the first martyr in the Christian church, when he died, it says he slept. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it talks about New Testament saints who have already passed away, it says those who are sleeping, awaiting the trumpet call when they're resurrected, they're just sleeping. Even Old Testament saints, it says in the Bible, they're just sleeping. So even those that God personally took for the purpose of discipline in His church, they're still just sleeping. See, we're not talking about worthy and unworthy persons. We're talking about worthy and unworthy manners of going about these things. And yet, it absolutely matters, doesn't it? God cares how we go about these things. So even though Paul is speaking as an apostle, and he's making the direct connection to their situation and their sickness, and that there's no one on the face of the earth that should do that today, who could do that today, because that takes a special revelation from God. There is no reason to think that this has stopped. I want to share with you 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. It says, for it is, it is time, this is Peter speaking present tense during his time, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Does God still discipline His children? Yes. Does God still judge the church currently, presently? Yes. Through His discipline. It still goes on today. And so a a summary statement for what we just read, I want to read to you from Thomas Schreiner, thinking of the Lord's table. He says, Certainly Paul is not calling for perfection before eating the supper, for the Lord's Supper is for forgiven sinners. What Paul objects to is blatant sin in the community, sin which contradicts the purpose of Christ's sacrifice. That blatant sin is worthy of correction, isn't it? Worthy of discipline. 
But we can avoid this discipline. Look at verse 31. Sandwiched between those two verses we just looked at, Paul says, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. If we examined ourselves and esteemed the body rightly, we would not be disciplined. The discipline of God is avoidable. So how do we go about a correct observance of the Lord's table? How do we go about doing this rightly? Let's dwell on that for these last two verses. Paul says, so then, verse 33, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Paul's plain instruction here is that the church was to eat in unity. I like the way the NIV or the Christian Standard Bible, both of those, the way they translated this, verse 33, to drive home Paul's point, which is togetherness in unity. Eat together, Paul is saying. The emphasis isn't so much on timing as it is focus on the unity of the body when you do it. Focus on the togetherness of the body. Yes, leave time for self-examination, as Paul just gave them instructions. Leave time for that. There should be that. But don't mock one another with food. The rich should not be sitting off away from the poor, eating nice meals while the poor are hungry. We should do this together. We should do this in unison. We should do this in a way that reflects the unity we have in the gospel. The Corinthian problem was gathering selfishly. And that led to gluttony. It led to drunkenness. So there's, that tips you off. They weren't using Welch's grape juice. <laughs> they were coming together and gorging themselves. Well, what's the solution? Consider the body rightly. Esteem the body of Christ rightly. And that's what he leaves them with. And he makes a little note here saying, the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. How humbling is that for the Corinthians? These are matters that Paul's heard about from other people, and they get the letter and they might be wondering, oh, I wonder what people have said. He's going to sort it all out when he arrives. Of course, there's more left to the letter. We have five full chapters left after this, but it seems as though Paul goes on to answer their particular questions. You see at the beginning of chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts, it says. Anytime that phrase comes up in the book, now concerning, it seems as though Paul's answering one of their specific questions. And so, for the moment, Paul is done bringing things up that he's heard from other people, and he's going to go back to answering their specific questions. But he gives them that final word of eat together in unity in a way that reflects gospel love. Is there a way that this passage directly applies to us today. I was saying at the beginning how we're not having a love feast together in someone's house, right? Here we are in this building with a little, little piece of bread and a little cup. And so it could be easy to read through this knowing the context and say, well, this doesn't really apply, but it does. And I want to give you just a few thoughts to think through. Now, we know that in the New Testament, the way they went about observing communion evolved. It changed. In Acts chapter 2, it was day they were breaking bread from house to house. They were observing communion day by day in the houses of believers. And then we see later on in the book of Acts in chapter 20, on the first day of the week they gathered and they observed the breaking of bread. It happened on Sunday, the way we do it. And it's presumed that they 
likely did it every Sunday. We don't know for sure, but it seems likely. But there's freedom in observing communion. Not every church does it the same way. In fact, we've just broken our own rules by doing it three weeks in a row, right? But there aren't any rules. That's kind of the point. There's freedom in this as long as you're not ignoring it. Yet in our circles, I'd say in basically every Christian circle in America and in many other places, it's become very formalized, this whole breaking of bread. It's become something that we do essentially the same way every time in our own formal manner. And there's, again, nothing that's objectively wrong with that at all. But we have to be careful that we don't forget the meaning of it and the manner in which we are to go about it. We are to remember that this is about love. We are remembering the love of Christ that He showed to us through His death and resurrection. We're to remember the love that we have for one another because we're doing it together. We shouldn't approach the table thinking about ourselves and ourselves only. We need to think about ourselves in the context of the whole, that we're doing it together as the body of Christ. As we live together, that phrase that's somewhat popular now, do life together, it's not a bad phrase, it's just perhaps overused. As we do it, we need to remember that it really is together, isn't it? We're not individuals only. We are individuals who are parts of a body. So this requires, as we observe communion, this requires slowing down, something that some of us aren't very good at. I'm guilty. It requires slowing down to think, to consider, to meditate on what we're doing. When we observe the Lord's Supper together, it's not a time for joking. It's not a time to be flippant. It's a time to be quite reverent because there's a worthy manner and an unworthy manner. And there's great freedom in all those manners, but we don't want to cross any lines here. We don't want to do it in such a way that reduces the meaning of it down to something that's casual or flippant. But we want to consider the body and the blood of our Lord, seriously as we partake of the symbols. We want to examine ourselves. We want to make amends where amends need to be made, those interpersonal relationships that affect our worship. When it's time to eat and drink and we all do it together, that's our practice here is that we hold on to the bread and the cup so that we do it together. It's good to look around and see you're doing it together. It's good. Not in a way that is judgmental or condemning, but judging rightly in a way that esteems the body rightly, that cherishes the body of Christ, that shows proper reverence for the church. We need to be considerate of these things as we observe the Lord's Supper.